Hi, Lisa, and welcome to Bombay and welcome to Cafe House. We're really delighted to have you here. And most importantly, just having come off this astonishing coup with the India-Australia free trade agreement, early harvest having been signed, and now the actual agreement is going to be signed later in the year. So we are more than welcome to our new friends, <laughs> not just as democracies, but also in the Indo-Pacific and in the Quad. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here in, in Bombay and at Gateway House. And a few questions right away since we're both women. An area of emphasis for Gateway House since its finding has been uh, find the role of women in foreign policy. So what does that really mean? Does it mean that you have more women ministers or women foreign policy, foreign ministers? Is it having more women in government, in policy making policies? Is it really what they call the feminization of foreign policy? And what does that even mean? Um, and also, does it mean just more people like you and me, Lisa, uh, trying to promote a different kind of policy, foreign policy? And just to bring it up to date, I noticed that there's a lot of foreign ministers who are women. And in the crisis with Ukraine and Russia, they have been advocating for more militarization rather than another kind of policy. The women are supposed to be the peacemakers. So how would you define women in foreign policy? Look, that's an excellent question and I think very pertinent if you look at the fact that we're currently facing all sorts of global challenges, whether they be in terms of conflict and conflict zones like the uh, Russian invasion on Ukraine or whether we look at uh, the, the sort of impact of climate change on so many vulnerable communities, often you know, women and, and children bearing the brunt of those, or whether you look at the sort of the, the geopolitical landscape that continually is changing, particularly with, you know, this sort of influence of, of China in, in the Indo-Pacific. I think the importance of inclusive decision making is, is incredibly pertinent. And that means we do need a diversity of voices. And I think that diversity of voices means, you know, a representation of both men and women sitting at the, at the peace table and you know, looking at the fact that, you know, debates on global values and norms and, and ethics and thoughts can only really be resolved if we have more of an equal sort of gender balance around that table. But as you point out, it's very interesting the fact that we do have some female foreign ministers. In fact, in Australia, we have a female foreign minister in Maurice Payne. And, you know, what is their role in terms of addressing some of these conflicts? You know, there's been a lot of criticism, I think, in terms of, you know, the sorts of responses that have been made by particular governments to particular conflicts thus far. But if we look back, you know, in history, I think it's been some 20 years now since the UN Security Council Resolution 1325. That, of course, was the Women, Peace and Security Resolution that was about opera operationalising a global approach to diplomacy around conflict that recognises the importance of the participation of all genders and, and women playing a, a vital role in that. I think that resolution was a turning point in history, but it is worth us examining some 22 years on how much women have been included in the process of peacekeeping and peace building and whether or not that resolution has really been as effective as it was sort of hailed to, to be when it, when it was passed 
so many years ago. I mean, I still see that, you know, whilst the percentage of peace agreements that, that make any reference to women or gender has increased from, you know, from, from the past, it has still got a long way to go. And this is where I think what you what you termed the the, the feminization of foreign policy is something that's quite interesting because you know adopting a sort of feminist foreign policy approach I think means a, a commitment to gender equality and I think that is a good thing and it's something that all countries I think should address and look at it a lot more. There are some countries that are leading the way in that space but I think we could have a lot more focus on it because I do think that you know, women still may make decisions that are similar to those being made today. We all know those decisions by female foreign ministers are made on all sorts of different grounds. But I think that, you know, the, the woman's voice at the, at the peace table certainly gives a diversity of views. All right. That, that's, a, that's a good one. I, I would like to ask you a question yes. now. And, and that is, you know, looking at the fact that here we are in, 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 in Bombay and in India, uh, noting the fact that India will take up the presidency of the G20 in 2023. We've got obviously uh, the Russian invasion on Ukraine that's occurred that's led to a number of current G20 members attempting to expel Russia from current G20 forums. How do you see India next year balancing its old relationship with Russia with its new closer economic and geopolitical alignments with countries like Australia and other quad countries at the G20? So, Lisa, I think that India has a fantastic opportunity to use the G20 to, to, re, to revitalize the G20 in some sense. The G20 should not be made a political tool. I mean, these are multilateral but it's a multilateral body, but it's a unique one because it has no secretariat and every country brings its best uh, ideas to the table and it continues to build on the previous ideas. So for India, I mean, given that Indonesia has been, has found itself in this unenviable position of being the G20 president during this, this big conflict that seems to have divided the world, um, India has a wonderful chance to revitalize the G20 and also in some sense, thanks to this marvelous free trade agreement with Australia, for it's going to be, I think, India's coming out party. In a sense, India had a coming out party in 2000 when Bill Clinton came to India. And I remember the, the newspaper said that the newspaper said that it was in India's um, uh, India was coming out to the geopolitical ball, the global ball for the first time. Well, it's going to be 2023 and we are going to be, it's our coming out party because we've done a lot of work since then. And we have also understood through really our techno technological prowess and also our development, we have been able to be some kind of model uh, to the world because we've seen some progress. And so I think India will use the G20 year very well uh, I think it will do what it's doing now, which is really have no time for those who want to create divisiveness in the world community, because the G20 is equal. They're, each country is equal to the others, be it little South Africa or the big United States. And most importantly, India will remember, and we will not forget, that there are now four developing countries in a row that are going to be G20 presidents. So. Indonesia followed by India, followed by Brazil, followed by South Africa. We have a very important 
uh, agenda. We've got a very important role and we will start maybe being that bridge between the developed and the developing worlds. So all the issues about you know, trade and investment, uh, bridging the digital divide, climate change, these are all, we, we have to be careful not to allow the SDGs to be part of the G20 agenda, that's lazy. So it's our time now to start creating a proper G20 agenda, which is to prevent another economic crisis, which is what conflicts this conflict is going to do. So I hope that we are able to do that well and we start working early on it. Fantastic, I'm yeah. looking forward to <laughs> India's presidency. So from our side, a question we had about the Quad and um, which Australia and India are proud part of. So the Quad, the Quad is very important to India because it is the first big grouping in which India is has come in on the ground floor with three partners. We're the only emerging economy, and then you've got three very highly developed economies. So uh, it is really, it's it's great to be part of this group. So for this, really, India needs for India to operationalize freely. It isn't just the things we do in silos, you know, technology and energy and uh, investment, but really across the board, how can we be an equal player with these highly developed economies if we don't have enough institutions to help to roll out these processes and ideas and we don't have enough processes and the Western world really works very well and is developed because you know how to build institutions. So how can, what can, what can Australia do to help India expand this institutional institution building capacity and to adapt processes um, so that we can operate seamlessly with the Quad? Look, I think the Quad is a really exciting agenda for both India and Australia to work closer together. And I've seen that happening at both the, the foreign minister level um, and also at the leader level. We recently had the last Quad meeting in Australia, in Melbourne, where I live, and we were very excited. That was a foreign minister's meeting. Very excited to host your foreign minister at our institute for that very special meeting. I think, though, when it comes to the Quad, clearly it's not just about it having a security agenda anymore. It, it, or at least it's taking the notion of security to mean a lot more. It's looking at you know, security in terms of vulnerability in, in, in relation to climate change. It's looking at supply chain resilience and the fact that we've now got issues in our supply chains. Um, it's looking at the, the impact of, of the COVID-19 pandemic and the need for all people to have access to vaccinations. So all of these working groups that have been formed within the, the Quad, I think really enables India to play a constructive role. And that's where India is playing to its strengths. I mean, India has a really solid manufacturing base, particularly in the pharmaceutical yes. industry. That's not something Australia has. So we can learn from India in, the, in that sense and support India in that. I think it's something like a billion vaccines <laughs> that India has to manufacture uh, as part of its you know, obligations or commitments as, as part of the Quad that will provide you know, access to vaccines across the Indo-Pacific. These are really important sort of humanitarian outcomes that both Australia and India are committing to in terms of the Quad, that we, we can support India in terms of. So it's about really playing to our strengths as different nations in, in different you know, stages of development. 
and, and bringing different sort of um, skills and opportunities to, to the table. But I think ultimately the importance of the Quad is the fact that all of the countries that are members of it really believe in one thing, and that is a stable, prosperous Indo-Pacific region that's based on a, rule, a rules-based approach uh, that operates and under those rules and, and wants to see um, more you know, peace, prosperity for all nations that make up the Indo-Pacific. Now, for Australia and India, of course, we're taking that really seriously through, through the signing of an interim um, free trade agreement. But that's not to say that, that the rest of the Indo-Pacific won't benefit from that either. I think Australia stands ready to support India in terms of its commitments and obligations under the Quad and, you know, vaccine manufacturing being one of those. But I think equally, you know, Australia can learn from India in terms of its, its sort of um, public diplomacy and the way in which it is it's really engaging with Japan, the United States and Australia on the Quad's agenda, whilst at the same time holding its position of, of you know, sort of um, um, autonomy. Um, you know, it doesn't have any, any firm alliance in terms of a security alliance with any other country, unlike Australia, which obviously does with the United States. Um, and this is where I think we learn from each other and we learn the fact that whilst the Quad is not a, you know, it's not a formal grouping, it is a grouping that still is very impactful and very meaningful for, for both of our countries to uh, ensure we, we contribute to a peaceful and stable in Indo-Pacific. Just, just to follow up on the Quad, in fact, the Quad is best positioned because we're doing all the supply chain changes, etc. Given what's going on in Russia and Ukraine, these, these have been further disrupted. So actually the Quad is in a much better position, isn't it? Absolutely, I think so. I mean, only only in so far as we take up those opportunities of setting up new manufacturing. If we look at the fact that Australia has an abundance of critical minerals, we need them manufactured though. We need that downward processing to happen so that we have new opportunities to have semiconductors made elsewhere other than China. I think this is where India can play a vital role. That's exciting. All right. I've, I would just like to ask you, uh, about uh, the importance of, you know, the fact that China's growing influence in the Indo-Pacific has driven India to pursue it, very much its own regional security structures, uh, particularly that focus on maritime threats and the Indian Ocean emerging as essentially a, a thoroughway linking the world's major producers and consumers of natural resources and the like. How do you see the Indian Ocean? Is it, is it as well organised, do you think, as, say, the Pacific you know, in the Pacific, in the creation of perhaps a new grouping in the Indian Ocean to provide that that sort of security that's needed for for, for our economic prosperity. RIM has been our our leading um, institution that we work in, um, institution that we work around with, and that lay dormant for many many years, and it has now been revived. And partly there is an Indian Ocean conference now that takes place every year. It is competing with the Shangri-La Dialogue very nicely, but it really does take into account concerns of the smaller countries in the region that have been preyed on by bigger powers. So I think India understands that and I think 
our our partnership in the Indo-Pacific is with our Quad countries. So blending that together, I think, um, is pretty good. And in some sense, Australia understands the Pacific much better than India. And we understand the West, West Asia, Africa better than Australia. So together, I think that this should be should be uh, taken and blended. And maybe Lisa, this is what our two institutions can do, really study what are, what are your strengths and knowledge in the Pacific and ask the Indian Ocean, how do we bring that together to really create, without create a new multilateral institution, maybe we can blend that within the quad, the Indo-Pacific structures that already exist and exchange in particular with the blue economy and resources. Australia is so good on that that we have not even begun to start to look at our resources. And part of that is we don't, in fact, this is something University of Melbourne can do. You know, we don't really, we don't have degrees in oceanography. We don't uh, resource of the, of the ocean. I mean, this is something that our Navy does and our government institutions do. But in the private sector, there's not a lot going on. And India is now seeing a blossoming of private sector universities coming up after many years. And you will have met some of them. Uh, but they are so good and they are actually waiting for new ideas. They're borrowing from what they see global universities do, but Indian students really want to learn about our region. And here is something that Australia can help us with, with this kind of uh, knowledge. And I think that is where our, with education, that's the kind of institution building and knowledge building that we can do together. So we have uh, one last question. One last question that we have is really ECTA in particular. It is, um, this is, this is just remarkable. I have been at Gateway House and we started in 2009. And since 2009, we've been meeting countries that want to do a free trade agreement with India. It's a long line. And then all of a sudden, Australia comes right out with it. So the reason is that Australia has understood or took the trouble to understand India in a way that nobody else did. So maybe you can tell us something about what Australia did and also what was your role in helping to bring about this kind of agreement and understanding? Well, thank you, Manjeet. I, I wouldn't say it's happened all of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> this has been quite a long time coming and there's a lot of, a lot of trade negotiation that's happened uh, uh, along the way by, um, by both of our countries. However, they did get there and that's that's the main thing here. And it's very exciting, the fact that what we are calling Indos ECTA, ECTA of course being a Hindi word for unity. So it's that, that acronym of economic cooperation and trade agreement coupling up as a as a as a strong word of unity says a lot, I think, about both of our countries. But look, this is this is hugely exciting for Australia. You know, something like the amount of exports it will mean for both of us the fact that you know india you know i think was in 2020 australia's seventh largest trading partner will increase to be even more than that in years to come and the fact that we've unlocked so many new areas of cooperation looking at zero a zero duty on nearly a hundred percent of indian goods exports um, all sorts of areas as well as sort of cheaper Australian inputs into Indian manufacturing as well, and also lots of expanded work and study 
opportunities for Indians coming to Australia, which is very, very exciting, as well as those coming to India from Australia. So I think there's so many areas of growth with this, but in terms of what it means overall, it does mean that both, both countries will open new markets you know, into each other for decades to come. And it does provide, I think, it's, it's that overarching institutional mechanism that it provides for both of our current countries to improve trade. And that, may, that really comes down to relationships and trust. Um, it, we obviously recently at the Institute hosted your Trade and Commerce Minister, Piyush Goyal, alongside our own minister, uh, Dan Tian, for the sort of celebration of this agreement. And so much came out of that in terms of their, you know, their, their sort of strong relationship, yes. right, between each other. So that deep, close, strategic relationship that we now have will significantly enhance, enhance our bilateral um, trade in, in goods and services. In terms of my role, or at least the institutes, for some time now we've been hosting some experts in this space in the lead up to the signing. From last year, we had um, our former High Commissioner to India, Peter Varghese, who's obviously also the author of the India Economic Strategy, that famous blueprint that we have from Australia, alongside your former ambassador, uh, Anil Wadwa, who's you know obviously the, the author of the Australia Economic Strategy. Um, we hosted both of them to talk about how can we make this happen? And they really shared their deep perspectives on this. These are two individuals that have been working in this space and wanting to see this happen for a very long time. Of course, in Australia, they had, the government had a very open process that invited um, uh, individuals and organisations to provide submissions on what should be included, what should a, a free trade agreement look like. As an institute, we provided a submission to that. And of course, we hosted uh, a range of speakers as well as you know, ministers from both countries. But I think overall, we now have such a, such a solid foundation, whether it be in the India economic strategy and the update that's been done on that, the Australia economic strategy here from India, and now the interim free trade agreement. All of that bodes well for what we now want to see happen by the end of this year, which is the actual signing of a of a solid free trade agreement between both countries. I think this can be a real case study for Australia's engagement with other countries it wants to sign a free trade agreement with, but also for India. You know, this is, this is a really unique um, standpoint, I think, for India. It's really saying we want to engage bilaterally. We really want to make our economy be more externally facing. You know, the idea that India has been seen as a protectionist sort of economy yes. has certainly changed through the signing of this agreement and you know I think it's a win-win for both countries on so many levels not just in terms of commodities but also in terms of people and our people to people links is so important and so strong in Australia the fastest growing diaspora is the Indian diaspora and in fact will take over the UK diaspora <laughs> in the next five years so I think that's incredibly important that the role that our diaspora plays in building people-to-people -people links. So the human aspect of, of these sorts of agreements is really, really important. We need to think of that about this, obviously, in terms of the, the geopolitical context at the moment. Um, you know, there are challenges that have been placed on, on Australia from China's sanctions. 
This creates new markets for Australian producers. So it's very much welcome in Australia. It's, it's very much been welcome. And I know it's been welcomed here in India as well. Overall, I think it's that signalling that it tells not each other as two nations, but it tells the whole Indo-Pacific region. And that is that the Australia-India friendship uh, is a strong one. The relationship is, is continuing to go from strength to strength. And that may be at the economic level, but it also means it will continue to do so at the geostrategic level. That's not to say we won't always be on the same page, but I think we are more on it now than we've ever been. Lisa, I know you've played such an important part because you have been championing India-Australia relations for, I don't know, 20 years, maybe more. So I think you can pat yourself on the back also for this very astonishing and fabulous moment. Oh, Manjeet, I'm just excited to be playing a, such a pivotal role now in really strengthening and promoting Australia-India relations. You know, based on my own ancestral heritage, there is a personal a personal sort of commitment to, the, to this, seeing this relationship go forward. But on top of that, I think it's just so incredibly important for both of our countries right now. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks, Thanks very much.